This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. This is a fascinating conversation we're having. Sandy Clough, Sean Rotar, and Dr. Rick Perea sitting in for Sean, who will be returning on Friday. And we're talking about uh, Sean Keeler's fine column in the Denver Post uh, this morning. Sean did a terrific job uh, with the Cormani McLean story. Uh, McLean is the freshman cornerback, five star recruit, uh, Deion Sanders' big recruiting uh, move. In his first season at the University of Colorado, was getting Carmani McLean, who might have been going just about anywhere else, coming out of Florida, out to the University of Colorado, and uh, some of the problems that generally have not been stated all that explicitly, and some of the quotes that came out of the column. We've been talking to Dr. Perea about some of these comments, and from what you've said. And from what I've learned in listening to you talk about this story uh, for the past hour, I think the most insightful comments on Cormani McLean come from Juwan Mitchell, who is the grad transfer linebacker, mm-hmm. and probably in the absence of Travis Hunter, including Sanders' own son Shiloh, the best defensive player that Colorado has without Hunter in the lineup. And as it happened, Juwan Mitchell roomed in Fort Worth with Carmani McLean. Mm-hmm. Their first trip of the year, their opener against TCU. And we mentioned uh, earlier in the program that Mitchell uh, tells Keeler's first reaction upon learning he was rooming with McLean was, darn, they roomed me with a freshman? That was his initial reaction. This yeah. is a grad transfer who's, who's been around. And then he goes on to say this. Nah, McLean's mature. He knows what he wants in life. He's going to go get it. Yeah, he's got things he's got to work on. We all do. Mm. But he's real hungry. He comes in every day ready to work. He's long, real long. He's special. I expect coming back in a year or two, him being one of those elite guys for sure. That seems like the most insightful thing that is said in the column about Carmani McLean and very different, almost completely contradictory yeah. to what Deion Sanders said at his very public press conference about Carmani McLean earlier this week. Yeah. And I think I, for me, I'm going to trust the, the word of his teammate. His teammate spends time with him, obviously on the road as roommates. Right. They spend time together. And trust me, when you're a roommate, you talk. You talk at night. You talk in the morning. You talk a lot. And you share feelings. And he observes him. He says he comes every day ready to work. Yeah. Yeah, that does contrast what Dion said. And that's really Directly. So that Dion Sanders says he's not playing because he's not working. Yeah. And, you know, I this brings me to my point. There's a term we use in psychology called ethnocentrism or ethnocentric. And ethnocentric means you're you're very bias towards your viewpoints based on where you've grown up, who you are, what you've done. Again, Dion's a corner. This kid's a corner, right? So he's seeing it through a biased standpoint. Now you might say, well, it's the best standpoint, a corner evaluating a corner. Not always. Sometimes, you know, it's why parents aren't good to coach their own kids. 
you're too close to the and home maybe plate. John Elway wasn't great at drafting quarterbacks. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, and, and isn't that a, isn't that an amazing assumption that we assume that because someone can play the position of quarterback, that they're automatically going to have the competency and acumen to draft and understand the talent of a quarterback. Those are two different skill sets. But what back to the Dion piece is he is a corner. He's evaluating a corner. He's ethnocentric. He's centric to his viewpoints. There's pieces he doesn't see. He's looking at it through a very biased lens. The kid that is his roommate, the Mitchell kid, yeah. that's the word I'm going to go with, that he shows up every day to work. Even even Samari Roll. Now, you know who Samari Roll is. You know how he knows Dion. They played together at Florida I, State. I understand. You know, so, I, so <laughs> you know, he got a five-star. He got yeah. to put on a platter for him, okay? But the point is, is I think what Dion has done, he's become very centric to his viewpoint, to the mentor's viewpoint, to Samari's viewpoint, and really probably hasn't looked at this kid with an ob- objective, OB, an objective viewpoint, and probably needs to step back a little, f- a few steps, and watch the kid develop. And you know what? As a true freshman at corner, that's a very challenging mental position. And so understand that the kid may need to get reps here and there, maybe with the ones, maybe with the twos, to get him acclimated, give him that that self-peace of self-efficacy so he can build that. And so when he steps on the field, he's the player you have envisioned him to be. Both Sean and I spoke before the season began with people who had watched every CU preseason practice, every one, been up there every day. And the word we got well before the season began was that the McLean kid is just not ready. And we didn't hear that he wasn't ready because he wasn't applying himself, that he wasn't studying, that he was showing up late to meetings. I mean, we're having meetings (laughs) around those practice sessions. None of that. He just wasn't physically ready to start yet. And, what Samari Roll does say at one point in here, and you jumped up to agree with this, almost literally jumped out of your seat to agree <laughs> with this, when he said, uh, you can't rush it, everybody develops at a different rate, yes. at a different pace. And 100%. that was the wisest thing Samari Roll said in this column. Now, his final comment, this is about Carmani McLean. This is from Samari Roll. He's going to be fine. The light will come on for him. He wouldn't be all the way out there in Colorado just to let the time pass by. I think he's got no choice but to get it right. But Roll had just said everybody develops at their own pace. And Mitchell said, I expect coming back in a year or two, he'll be an elite guy. Yeah. Not everybody is as great as a freshman as, oh, let's say Deion Sanders was at right. Florida State, or maybe yeah. as uh, Samari Roll was at Florida State. Yeah. You know, there's people that peak in high school. They're the best they'll ever be in high school. True. And that could or could not be true with this kid. Right. And some people, you know, you know, like uh, Sylvester Williams we had here several years ago on our Super Bowl team. Right. Didn't even start a playing in high school. Was a starter on – the Super Bowl 15. Yeah, starter. And it didn't play a ton because nose tackles aren't usually out there unless they're, right. it, it, you know, terrific. Right. 
they're not out there more than 50% of the time, right. most Sundays. But he didn't even start playing football until high, his senior right. year in high school. Right. So my point is everyone develops. That's the smartest thing is written in that in that article yep. by Samari is that everybody right. develops at a different speed. Well, guess what, Samari et, et al. Mm-hmm. Everybody develops at a different level emotionally and psychologically too, right. not just right. the physical part. And so we've got to understand, again, that's why we have mental health experts in sport performance and not everybody understands. See, when Dion was playing, they didn't have psychologists in the NFL that did this stuff. So he may not even be aware. He may not even be privy to. I've run into that a lot with old school coaches that don't understand. They're just like, oh, you do your job. But when I explain to them what I do, they're like, whoa, okay, that's a whole nother different level. And they, they start buying in and understanding. So I really think this kid is going to be fine if we just understand him from the neck up, stop evaluating him only from the mm-hmm. neck down and evaluate yeah. him from the neck up too. And then he'll truly develop at the rate he's supposed to and hopefully be a contributor, a starter, and potentially a, a, an excellent elite player that can help him win some football games in the future. Well, uh, over the course of an hour, uh, you have uh, convinced me that uh, patience should be exercised with this kid. And the assumption that even if he wasn't ready to start the season, if somebody, Travis Hunter, for example, gets hurt, this kid would just be plugged in. He'd be ready to go. Maybe he wouldn't be Travis Hunter, but he's a five-star recruit. And we're so used to hearing about people coming in now as freshmen and being great that we don't allow for the possibility, one, that given his physical dimensions at the moment, that may be as good as he ever gets. It may be. Or that he progressed quickly and now he's plateaued a little bit during a transition period. And the wise words of Juwan Mitchell eh, might take a year or two absolutely, for him to reach the elite level in this phase of his development. As a college football player, playing or not playing while CU's going up against a TCU team that was at least start of the season rated in the top 20 and Oregon and USC who are unquestionably at least for now, two top 10 teams with great receivers. Right. I mean, USC has guys who could play in the NFL right now. Sure. Playing for them. Yeah. I mean, you've seen receivers coming out of USC. Oh yeah. I mean, I was known for tight ends and USC recently is kind of known for wide receivers. Yeah. Not the only school known for that because wide receivers are developing in all parts of the country at an astounding rate. But when you think of USC, it used to be tailback you when they had the Simpsons and the Marcus Allens, the world. Now I think of USC, I think of wide receivers. Yeah. So, I mean, even if this guy was ready to play, this Saturday, there are a bunch of guys on USC who would make him look bad. <laughs> right. Inevitably. Yeah. Would make him look bad. Yeah. But, Sandy, let's not forget the piece, the mental side, and how important it is for development. Let's take Julius Thomas. Julius Thomas yes. played here for the Broncos. Yes. 
He was a, um, I believe, a fourth round draft choice of the Denver Broncos I think out of that's right. Portland State. Right. Played one year of college football. Yeah. He was a college basketball player. And so many people will say, oh my gosh, what an athlete that he could come in at playing one year of college football and, you know, four years of college basketball and come in and become an, an all pro player, a pro bowl perennial, all pro bowl player. And I tell him, yeah, I get that. And by the way, Julius's name is on my door. He's, he works with us. He, when he's in town, he's mentoring he, some he's, of our people. He's one of the great people. Yeah. Uh, he's it, one of the great people I've met uh, in sports. And when we think back 10 years on that 2013 Bronco team that still holds the record for most points yeah. scored in a year. Wonderful uh, column on ESPN.com today by our friend Jeff Legwald. Uh, kind of an oral history of the 2013 Broncos. And uh, if if you get a chance to look at it, Rick, you'll find in a lot of those descriptions that oral history of that great offensive team, uh, the seeds there for the world champions that the Broncos would become in two years, even though they didn't have nearly as good an offense in 2015 as they had in 2013. But right in the middle, quoted and primarily featured in that piece, is not just Adam Gase or Peyton Manning or Demarius Thomas or Wes Welker or Eric Decker. Julius Thomas is all over the place yeah. in that piece. And and so what I want people to understand about the Ju- least celebrated Julius. of all those players. Yeah. But but one of one of the key guys. Oh. Who's but- who who was <coughs> Scored at least 10 touchdowns that year. I think they had five guys on the team, including no Sean Moreno, who scored 10 touchdowns or more that yeah. year. Remarkable. But Julius Thomas, drafted in the fourth round, played one year of college football, four years of college basketball, and people talk about what a great athlete he was to make it in the NFL, become a Pro Bowl player. And I say to them, have you ever met Julius Thomas and talked to him? He is so perceptive. He is so analytical. He's getting his doctorate in psychology at Nova Southeastern University. And I'm so excited for him because I I worked with him directly in Miami when he came down with us with the Dolphins. But he's so analytical, so perceptive. Let me give an example. We're sitting in a meeting one time um, with Adam Gase, and we're talking about offense, and he's, he's going through his offense. And that's one of the things I used to do is sit in on these meetings. And if I could add something emotionally, psychologically, I would. But Julius said to Adam, because they were going over. This is in Miami. This is in Miami. And so Adam Gase is going over with Julius some responsibilities. And he says, Julius, you've got to block that five technique. And a five technique in the in the NFL is the defensive end, who largely is in the neighborhood of 6'3 to 6'5, 270 to 300 pounds. And Julius looked at him and he said, why on earth would I block that five technique when you brought me here to catch balls? He goes, I can run a route. I'm a very I'm a hard match for anybody, a safety or a linebacker. I'm a mismatch. And you're gonna require me to block that five technique. He goes, Coach, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I'm best serving this offense if you if I'm in the route on that play. And you bring an H back that weighs 270 to block that. I weigh 245. I'm not gonna block him. But Julius has that unique way to communicate. Very perceptive, very analytical. So I challenge people. It wasn't just the neck down that enabled him as a fourth-round draft choice who only played one year of college football, 
to make it in the NFL and become an all-pro player. It was the neck up where he understood how to communicate with people, relate to people, and understand the playbook and understand how those parts meshed with the neck down. Julius Thomas, one of the greatest football slash minds of our time. Remarkable statement. And uh, you know Julius better than I do, but uh, I've been around him a little bit. And we used to talk to him just about every year at uh, training camp. And uh, given my limited exposure to him uh, on that basis, uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you. He, he was different. And that was what was special about that 2013 team. People think of Peyton Manning as being perhaps the smartest quarterback who ever lived, and that is quite possibly true. Yeah. Well, but next he time, was not alone on that team. Well, Everybody was yeah. like that. But I'm going to tell you something. Next time you and I are in Fort Lauderdale together, we're going to Julius's house, and with his brain and your brain in the same room, that is going to explode. No, 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 <laughs> no. I don't, I don't belong in the same room with Julius Thomas. Uh, listen, I've known Rick Perea. And this is all serious. I've known Rick Perea for almost 11 years now, and he's the best in the business, and there's been evidence of that over the last couple of days. And you can get your checkup from the neck up from Dr. Rick Perea. Every Monday, of course, at 5 p.m. here on Mile High Sports, but the former psychologist of the world champion Denver Broncos, Colorado Rockies, and current world champion Denver Nuggets, is available for you because Dr. P helps middle and high school performers to reach peak levels too. Whether you're an everyday performer at work, at play, or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look them up at Dr. P at thinkone4u.org. That's number four, by the way. Thinkone4u.org. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. I think this is uh, one of the more unfortunate stories uh, that we've come across in sports, and we haven't talked about it very much. Uh, on this program, and Rick, even during the break, we didn't talk about it very much, but uh, Mel Tucker was officially fired. He was sort of unofficially fired um, days, if not weeks ago, at Michigan State, and we won't delve into the particulars of the story because you're probably familiar with it right now. Uh, Mel Tucker is under investigation for essentially conduct unbecoming a football coach, uh, there was uh, a morals clause in his contract, which he signed uh, a couple of years ago for 10 years and $95 million, $79 million of which has not yet been paid to Mel Tucker, and he was fired with cause today. And you were a little bit familiar 
if not with Mel Tucker, then with the people around Mel Tucker when he came to Boulder Mm -hmm. in 2019. And, of course, uh, spent that year leading the University of Colorado. uh, And the team did show some signs of improvement. And he seemed to have some pretty good ideas on how to rebuild the program. And, of course, as we all know, uh, after uh, denying that he had any interest in leaving, um, he earned a sobriquet Midnight Mel for uh, leaving uh, the Colorado program. Uh, yes, virtually in the middle of the night. Right. Uh, coming back after he had agreed to terms with Michigan State and asking Rick George if he could talk to the CU players. And Rick George, I think, quite properly said no. You will not be allowed to talk to those players because you lied to them. Mm. Yeah. And you lied to us. Yeah. Um, I can't fathom how someone in his position who was engaged in a number of initiatives uh, including providing uh, pipelines that had not existed before for young black coaches, mm-hmm. uh, dealing um, one of the few coaches to do this with uh, a sexual assault advocate, um, having what he describes as a consensual affair with that advocate, and of course the advocate has a very different take on what happened, issued a complaint to Michigan State, which was not made public when it was initially made. People say, well, all of a sudden she comes out of the woodwork years later. Well, no, she issued the complaint. It just wasn't made public. Right. And that was made last year, almost a year ago. In any case, he's been fired, and I, I look at, college football, and we've talked about this with respect to Deion Sanders, 14 black coaches out of 133 head coaching jobs on the FBS level at Power 5 schools, of which there are 69, only 7 out of 69 jobs are held by blacks, and now that number goes down with Mel Tucker having been fired at Michigan State. I I just can't fathom the circumstances under which somebody who had so much going for him would behave in that manner and I think justifiably get fired with cause today, although they are still investigating the incident. Now that it's public, they had no choice but to fire. Well, you know, there's quite a record of coaches behaving in what we call maladaptive ways. <laughs> yes. Um, and both white and black and, yeah. and brown, for that yeah. matter. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things in, in, the, in college sports as a head coach at a Power 5 school, there, there's a lot of pressure. And in no way, shape, or form and I, am I excusing this behavior, but one of the things we study yeah. in performance psychology is anxiety's impact on performance. And as you know, Sandy, when I was with the Dolphins in Miami, we had a coach down there, and it doesn't matter what his name is, but you who know, happened to be white, who happened to be white, who was snorting cocaine off his right. desk and then put it out on the internet. Yes. Well, we we had to fire that guy the same day. Um, that happened while I was down there. By it, the, way. Yeah, the day yeah. I left, yeah, yeah, to come back here that. was the day he was fired. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of record of that. You know, 
Mel Tucker, I think, you know, from day one had some, some flags. Um, you know, I wrote down that, you know, communication skills are very important in an interview process. And one thing I want people to know in industrial organizational psychology, mm -hmm. we study this. Some people interview really well, <laughs> but then they don't necessarily fulfill the job really well and vice versa. Some people don't interview well and yet could have made a good choice had they been given the opportunity. That's why we have what's called today work samples. And we, we take samples of people. Now, in the context of a college football coach, can't really do that. But what you can do is make a quantitative assessment of their one loss record. You can talk to people around them, their, their AD, the, the, the staff, the people around them. And for the most part, people will talk good about people that are being interviewed for being promoted into another position. But I think there are plenty of indicators. And again, here we go about not knowing what you don't know. When, you know, uh, uh, an athletic director gets together a committee to hire a new coach, they need to include in there a psychologist. And it can be a performance psychologist, an industrial organizational psychologist, not necessarily a clinical because we mm -hmm. want to know who, how they are in the bigger picture, not just in a one-on-one -on -one picture. Because, again, let's look at their behavior. Let's look at their tendencies. I will guarantee you there's something in Mel Tucker's background, guarantee you, that mm -hmm. would have indicated that some of this was coming down the road. Yeah. But we just don't look close enough. We're not willing to look close enough, especially if he's got a winning record. Oh, wow, he led that organization to a winning record? We're going to hire that. Mm -hmm. We've got to get better at understanding the psychological part and performance of coaches, not just players. We do that at the NFL Combine. We spend from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. every night evaluating them emotionally and psychologically. We've got to do the same with coaches. We've got to evaluate them and understand. Now, is it, is it perfect or, or, you know, weed out all the bad people? No, right. but it will help us minimize some of these hires that are costing universities right. Millions and Absolutely. millions and millions of dollars. And, that and would, it would never fly in the private sector with a business because they couldn't afford to do listen, that. Listen, there'll be all kinds of lawsuits around. Listen, yeah. Tucker's all but said he'll sue Michigan State because they're firing him with cause, and that means they're denying him 79 out of the $95 million, which was, by the way, not the first contract he signed there. He had initial success. They tore up the deal yep. they'd given him initially, yep. which was quite lucrative. And they gave him a 10-year deal for $95 million. Yeah. But, you know, he knows and his attorney knows you whittle this all into a funnel, guess what? He's going to settle. He's going to settle. And maybe not for 79. He's going to settle for 45, for 50. No. That's what's going to happen at the end of the day. That's where I was going with this. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe. Listen, I've been, you know, from what I have read and heard about all, all of this, it's it's unseemly, um, but they fire him with cause because they don't want to pay anything out of the seventy nine million. And you know all the problems they've had mm -hmm. with with Strasser and, and the, mm -hmm. the whole uh, business with that, which put a stain on uh, their reputation. So if they get around anything like this, you know how they're going to react. Get them out as quickly as possible. Yep. But I agree with you. There will be a settlement reached, and he'll probably end up getting some of that money. But here's the thing. I can't imagine he'll ever coach again. No. He doesn't need to, though. I mean, he, you know, financially, he'll be, he can do commentating. He can write books. 
He can be on the uh, lecture circuit. There's a lot of things that Mel Tucker yeah. will offer. And financially, coach, but financially, yeah. he'll be paid he'll be, he'll be like a successful coach yeah. at some point. Yeah, because yeah, I agree with you. He would. He, he, they they'll come to a settlement agreement uh, at some point down the road. It'll be a very quiet story, maybe even a non-story, uh, but there will be uh, some kind of settlement. Um, I have a question for you. And I only ask you this question because you've been around the Broncos yeah. so much. And to this day, you have some connection with sure do. the organization. And I mentioned uh, about 15 minutes ago that I've known you for 11 years. And I was just looking back because I read the very fine Jeff Legwald piece today. Uh, oral history of the 2013 Denver Broncos, the greatest offensive team in terms of points scored in a single season, the history of the National Football League. And it reminded me that the Broncos, in 2013, 2014, 2015, and for the first four games, I'm sorry, first 10 games of 2016, went to two Super Bowls, won one in the playoffs, Every year, and apparently in 16, 7 and 3 after 10 games, on their way to the playoffs again. Their record for that time, I just outlined 44 and 21, winning percentage 677. You know how many games they've won since? Over not 65 games, but 107 games. 37. Mm. They won more games in three years, in the first 10 games of a fourth, then they've won in the last six games of 2016, all of 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, and so far in the first three games of 2023. Their winning percentage was 677. Their winning percentage over the last 107 games since winning 44 out of 65 is 346. That's barely half yeah. the number of games per year that they're winning now. Yeah. As opposed to what they were doing then. Basically, it works out. They were winning 12 games a year during that 65-game stretch. Spread over a 16 or 17 game season as yeah. you have right now. Now they're winning six games a year based on the pace they've set over the last 107 games. I have never seen that happen before to an organization to be so high and seemingly overnight plunge into the depths of despair. And when we come back, I want to give you a shot at explaining that from your particular perspective because you've known so many of the characters yeah. who have been a part, in some cases, of both the astounding success and the miserable failures mm -hmm. of almost eight years now. Almost eight years. Wow. From November, late November of 2016 through September of 2023. That's the same organization that won 44 games out of 65 
was in two Super Bowls and won one over a three-year period. It, it, it's amazing. And no team in the history of the Super Bowl era has won a Super Bowl and then gone seven years and apparently going on eight years without making the playoffs even once. Never happened. We'll await Dr. Rick Perea's explanation for that next on My Life Sports. She runs on 100 proof attitude power. And the more she ignores me, the more bright sword. This is Sandy Clough. And Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Sandy Cleft, Dr. Rick Perea sitting in for Sean Rotar here on Mile High Sports Radio, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. Our caller text line if you want to jump in, 303-831-1340. We're streaming on milehighsports.com slash listen, as well as milehighsports.com slash watch. And, of course, we come to you via the free Mile High Sports app. Our producer is the great Danny Bailey. And Dr. Perea, the floor is yours. It, it, it continues to amaze me that more or less over the last decade, the Broncos have gone from the highest of highs. Yeah. You've talked about it in February of 2016. You don't get any higher as an organization than that. You win a Super Bowl in a year when, by all rights, you have no business winning. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> most Super Bowl champions, you can kind of see it coming. Coming. With that team, you were thinking they're going to be traveling during the playoffs. Peyton Manning goes out. Brock Osweiler comes in. Brock Osweiler is effectively the starting quarterback who not only wins the division, but does a lot to help them get the number one seeded position. 100%. Without which the Broncos might not have gone to the Super Bowl. 100%. After the 2015 season. Yeah. They needed that home field advantage. Yeah, 100%. He, he, in those seven games, he subbed for Peyton. He went five and two. And again, without that five and two record, we don't get home field advantage. Exactly. We may not even make it to the Super Bowl. Let me talk to you about the differences between performance in all those years. Um, there's, you know, what happened? Well, let me just say this. Again, I pre-qualify by saying my angle, I come at it as a, from a psychologist perspective because it's a little bit different angle, but it's all research and evidence-based. And let me say this. I have uh, four graduate degrees, okay? Uh, my PhD took me six years to complete. A lot of education, Sandy, but you know what it took me? All that education to say it was love. It was love that was the difference. Now, let me support that. So in 2015, Gary Kubiak is the head coach. Correct. 2015, John Elway is the general manager. That's right. Back up to at 1983, John Elway's a rookie. Gary Kubiak, Kubiak's a rookie. I'm a rookie. We're all in minicamp together. We're all in training camp together. That's where I got to know those guys. So fast forward. To 2014, into the 2014 season, and John Elway's interviewing me in his office, and he says, "Why should I hire you mm -hmm. 
tell me. And I love that question. I love that question. Great question. And I said, well, you want to win a Super Bowl, right? He says, yeah. I said, well, that's, he says, that's why we hired Peyton Manning. I said, do you want, you want the best psychologist in the world? I'm not saying I'm the best researcher in the world. I'm not saying I write the best articles in the world, but in terms of player relation, I'm one of the best in the world. I can confidently say that. And he looks at me and he says, I believe it. He goes, I remember you. I remember that you're the only local kid when we're in training camp. You took us all over the city. But we had that cooperation. We had that collaboration. We could sit in a room and talk honestly with each other. Egos checked at the door. There were no egos in the room between Gary Kubiak and John Elway. Okay? That's rare. Between a GM and a head coach. Exactly. There were no egos in the room between John Elway and me. He would come to me and he says, hey, here's what I need from you. Or what should I expect from you? Right. He had an open book with me. There was we, we were able to cooperate, collaborate, and that forms what we call cohesion. It's the number one methodology in organizations and how they perform. Social cohesion is the top level. Task cohesion is the pragmatic level. Everyone does their job. Everyone carries out their assignment. But social cohesion, that's when we love each other. So when I go to the word love, it's really easy to say, oh, love, that's oversimplistic. Watch the teams that win. Watch them on the sidelines. They collaborate. They talk. They're loving each other. People, don't misunderstand me. Don't think of love as only hugging your husband, hugging your wife, your partner, your kids. Love exists on a competitive field, pool, track. It exists there. And when we as humans are open enough to open our hearts, open our soul, open our work ethic to love, to love what we do every day, we establish that cooperation, that collaboration, that cohesion that takes organizations to the top level. So the teams that had that in 13, 14, 15, you look at Adam Gase, 13, that guy loved coaching. There's nothing he loved more than coaching. I don't even care about his record as a head coach. That's what people are thinking out there. But he loved his players. He loved to coach. He built relationships with people. You know he built a relationship with you at one of the most trying times in your life. Exactly. Adam Gase is a real person, okay? Gary Kubiak is a real person. He loves his player, a former player. John Elway, say what you want about him. I have only seen collaboration and cooperation from that guy with everyone in the building and his players, okay? And then they bring me in, and they call me the love doctor. I didn't give myself that Mm -hmm. name. Someone else gave it to me. But I build that cohesion, that collaboration. That's what we had, Sandy. That's what we had. Because if you look at our defense, we were great. There's no doubt about it. There's three probably surefire Hall. There's definitely one Hall of Famer. Another one's coming down the pike in Von Miller. Absolutely. So, And we had a very average offense. We had a very average. Number 18 was at the end of his career. And he'll be the first to admit it. But what we had was a brotherhood a connection and love. And that love was spoke freely and openly. And I was, the rubber stamp is on it. Let me tell you why. Cause when I went to Canton, Ohio, Danny Trevathan, Brandon Marshall, TJ Ward, Malik Jackson, we all took a picture together and we were all like, this is why we won. 
seven years later, we're still dogs. We're still partners. They're still laughing at my clothes, the way I dress. It was so cool, Sandy, to understand that those guys got it during that year. They loved Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips Absolutely. loved them. It Absolutely. was it was just it was a concert of love every day. Von Miller doing his dance moves every day yeah. at practice. I mean, we just had so much love on that team. So people, I'll tell you this. Don't think it's oversimplified. But that love is built through cooperation, collaboration, and, co- and cohesion. And when you have that, you have a chance to do anything. That's when you see the teams that underachieve, overachieve. The teams that don't have all the talent end up winning. As you said, yeah. Sandy, and I'll finish with this. We weren't supposed to win the Super Bowl that no. year. We were not predicted to win the Super Bowl. It wasn't Denver's year. It wasn't, wasn't our year. Maybe it was Carolina's year. Maybe it was but New get, England's year. It wasn't Denver's year. But guess year. what? We didn't get that memo. Yeah. We didn't get that memo. We weren't supposed yeah. to win. And all we did was talk about love, love, love. And Emmanuel Sanders said it. We, You had us loving each other, appreciating each other, and climbing that mountain like that lone backed wolf that brought the pack together. That's who we were. And, again, to go back... Uh, I remember at the Super Bowl that year, we were broadcasting from San Francisco, and uh, I did have Jerry Kramer, the Hall of Fame guard from uh, the glorious Packer teams of the 60s on. And I said, you know, uh, your last championship team in Green Bay, 67, you were getting older as a team, didn't have the best team on paper, uh, Probably the two teams you beat in the NFL playoffs before the Super Bowl win against the Raiders, those two teams were were better than you were. And you beat them both. Yes. You beat them both. Yes. And one of the games, of course, was the Ice Bowl, uh, which uh, Green Bay won, but it – it was a game that Dallas should have won. They had their defense out there on that frozen field. Green Bay couldn't do anything. Dallas has had 14 to 10 with under five minutes to go in a game. And that was the team. And Kramer talked about this. He said Lombardi taught us a kind of love. And yes. he was the first coach yes. back then whoever talked about love and people think of Lombardi as a Martinet, you know, right. screaming and yelling players all the time. But he, Kramer, one of the guys Lombardi got on the most was, was Kramer, but Kramer saw the complete picture and saw what Lombardi built there. And, you know, in a funny way, the U S Olympic hockey team, the miracle and ice team in 1980 in Lake mm. Placid. Yes. They had, a love for each other Absolutely. that Brooks cultivated her Brooks, who was the, the hockey Lombardi. Yeah. At least during those Olympic games in 1980. And it, it, Lombardi did a little bit of this too, because both Brooks and Lombardi were master psychologists. Yeah, they were. <laughs> and, and Brooks in particular got those players who as college players wanted to kill one another. They played, they came from different parts of the country. There's a Western component and Eastern component. And the Boston kids and the Minnesota kids hated each other before the Olympics began. But 
they developed a bond in their mutual <laughs> dislike of Brooks. Yeah. But yeah. Brooks cultivated that. Absolutely. And 100%. when they won, the scene I remember when they beat the Soviets was Brooks at the end of the game raising his arms and all but sprinting off the bench because it was the players' moment. Mm. Mm. All but Love sprinting it. away yeah. off the bench. I mean, gave it the, the fist pump, yeah. but then he was off. Yep. And it was everybody else's celebration. And that was based on love. Absolutely. And, and, 100%. Uh, and all the dynasty teams that we talk about historically, maybe they stayed together a little more back then than they do nowadays. Yeah. And that's why we don't have as many dynasties nowadays. Teams get there broken up. And that happened here, I think. And they still had enough in 16 for 10 games to carry it over. Even without Manning and even with DeMarcus, who was still active, hurt much of the right. year. Vaughn was still there, mm -hmm. and they had just enough from the year before to get through the first 10 games. And then they lost a game they should have won here on a Sunday night after Thanksgiving against Kansas City. And they never were the same. Yep. They haven't been the same since. Yep. That started this 37-win, 70-loss stretch that night yep. when they were eight points ahead with three minutes to go. They were ahead in the overtime by a field goal. Kansas City matched them both times with a touchdown and a two-point conversion to force overtime, a matching field goal in the overtime, and then Gary went for a long field goal to try to win the game yep. and missed it, and the Chiefs were set up around midfield, made a first down or two, got into field goal range, and they kicked the winning field goal. And it's never been the same since. It, it, it was that fleeting. But they did have that a little bit in 2016, too, even though Gary got sick during the year. Yep. And even even though Vaughn Miller had a contract battle with Elway, which uh, at least for, for a few months probably soured their relationship a little bit. Yeah. Um, much as Peyton had the contract squabble with Elway prior to 2015, but they worked it out and they were professional enough that that didn't affect the climate, the atmosphere around the team. But uh, I remember Elway used to call you a uh, secret weapon. Yeah. For that, that year. Yeah. And, he, and, he didn't and, want nobody to know who I was. You, <laughs> and you gave you gave Wade Phillips a tremendous amount of credit, which oh, yeah. Wade Phillips, being if you know anything about Wade Phillips, he didn't want to hear anything about that. How how a man, what sixty nine, yeah, seventy, whatever he was back then, could relate to young athletes. He was a master in the way he did. Yeah, and he gave it the aw shucks. I, I don't have anything to do with it. I don't play. Yeah, they, they all. He was a big part of creating that atmosphere, too. And that's what he and his father were all about, too. Yep. And that's why Wade was a much better head coach than he lets on. Yeah. And his father was a terrific head coach. Yeah. Although not a great X's and O's guy. That's right. Well, I'll yeah. just finish by saying this, Sandy. Love is the answer. Yes. It's supported by research. It's supported by science. We can fill that in. But love is the answer. I love you. I love you, Danny. I love everything that we did today in these two hours. We'll be back tomorrow with more. And, and we'll, we, we've got a couple of uh, guests, yeah, I believe, we tomorrow got a, lined up. we got a couple yeah. of local uh, high school basketball coaches who are going to talk, talk to us about a fundraiser. A very important 
subject. And very a important that subject. They're doing on a very important subject. Very important subject in our society. Yeah. Uh, today, maybe the the most important subject in our society today, which is mental health. Uh, we'll find out a lot more about it. Absolutely. When uh, we reconvene at four, right back here on Mile High Sports. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.